turn to uh, Mark's Gospel now. We're returning again to the Gospel of Mark. We're uh, making our way into chapter 15 today. And uh, we're going to be reading together from Mark chapter 15 and verse 1. So if you would like to turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 15 and verse 1. Mark chapter 15 and verse 1. And we're going to read down to the end of verse 5. So just a, a short reading today, but we trust that the Lord will bless it to us nevertheless. Mark 15 verse 1. And straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marvelled. Amen. May the Lord bless this reading to our hearts. There is a common strand that flows through the whole process of the Lord Jesus Christ's uh, trials and interviews and interrogations. Whether we think of that very first encounter uh, with Annas at his home when the Lord was taken by the mob from the Garden of Gethsemane and stopped off at the house of Annas where he was uh, um, inquired of, where he was interrogated about his doctrine and his disciples. Or whether it is with Caiaphas in the main judgment hall before the Sanhedrin, the high priests and those who gathered there in order to interrogate the Lord. Or whether it's with Herod, who uh, Pilate sent the Lord to. Uh, hearing that he was a man from Galilee, he thought, well, perhaps I can get Herod to deal with this problem. And uh, Herod took him. He was delighted with the opportunity of meeting Jesus. He'd heard much about him, but the Lord didn't speak much to Herod at all. And Herod, frustrated, uh, had him beaten and sent back to Pilate. Or whether this Narrative. These few verses that we have before us here is taken as the pattern and uh, to highlight this common, uh, this common thread, this common strand. The point is that all of these men sat in judgment on the Lord and the Lord answered very little to them. They thought that they could decide what they would do with him. They all believed that they had the right and authority to decide what should happen 
to Jesus of Nazareth. And they brazenly exercised that assumed right. But what they did not consider was if Jesus truly was that one whom he said he was, then what they thought of him was of very little importance. Much more important is what he thought of them. And woe betides self-important little men. We see them in our world today. We hear them in pulpits. We see them in churches. We see them all around us. People who think that they can judge God and judge the Lord Jesus Christ. That they have the right to decide what is right and what is wrong with respect to the revelation of God and the work of salvation. And they set themselves up as arbiters. They set themselves up as judges over the Lord. We made mention in yesterday's little introduction sheet of Pilate's wife. And she's not mentioned in uh, Mark's gospel here. It's Matthew in the parallel passage that speaks of her. And Matthew alone amongst the gospel writers speaks of her. And in some respects, his reference to her is uh, uh, very brief and raises more questions than it answers. But one thing is clear about that lady. She sensed something about the Lord Jesus Christ that all of these other men did not see and did not understand. She had something revealed to her in a dream. Something of the magnitude of the present situation facing her husband and those around about him that no one else saw. And despite all their power, despite their civil power, their military power, their religious knowledge and training, she knew the Lord Jesus was a just man. And in some way, she knew that her husband, in judging Christ, was putting himself in great danger. Today, men and women imagine that they can still judge Jesus Christ. Indeed, there is a whole religious system has grown up in recent years and in bygone years that urges its followers to decide for Jesus and not to decide against Jesus, puts its followers into that place of deciding about Jesus and his salvation and emphasising man's free will in deciding their own eternal destiny. When in truth, the real question is not what you will decide to do with Jesus, but what the Lord Jesus Christ will do with you. And a great deal of humility and a great deal of self-examination uh, uh, is required by such uh, men and women as believe this doctrine. 
because it is not what we think of Christ that matters, but of what Christ thinks of us. The priests, they were about their nefarious business early in the day. We're told that straightway when it was day that they bound the Lord and took him to Pilate. And I imagine that many of these priests had been awake all night. They consulted together in the morning. They didn't consult together in order to discover justice, in order to do what was right, in order to do what was fair and and, and appropriate. They consulted together in order to agree a common narrative, in order to agree what accusations would best stick before Pilate concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted to settle on a story that would be sufficiently believable to convince Pilate of the Lord's guilt. Actually, it becomes clear when we uh, read these parallel passages from the gospel writers, it becomes clear that Pilate is well aware that they had delivered Jesus into his hands because of envy and that Jesus of Nazareth was the victim in this situation of their devious politics. And yet, despite that, every route that Pilate takes to release Jesus is blocked. And ultimately, we discover that the unjustness and the weakness of Pilate becomes evident. To Pilate, the life of one man was a small price to pay in order to keep the peace in Jerusalem at a time when the whole city was like a tinderbox of religious fervour, with anti-Roman sentiment just waiting to explode. Pilate couldn't afford to allow the people to get angry and for the mob to be violent, and so he was willing to be expedient with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not really Pilate that we're going to be thinking about today. And it's not his wife, and it's not Herod, nor indeed is it the priests and the people of Jerusalem. They don't take our interest nor demand our attention. It is the Lord himself to whom we look. And it is the things that the Lord said and did that revealed to us the blessedness of what was transpiring here at this time. I think there are several important lessons that are highlighted in this short passage. They draw our mind to the great work of redemption and blood atonement and the work of grace that is unfolding before our eyes. What it all meant, what its significance was and why it is important. And today I'm going to take just three headings and ask the Lord to bless our thoughts on these matters as we view the Saviour's steady progress towards the cross. He is going to die soon, within a few hours indeed, and the everlasting life that he has won for his people 
will be obtained when his own life is sacrificed on the cross. And we shall touch upon the teaching in this passage concerning the Lord Jesus Christ's role as our surety about Christ in his uh, office as king and thirdly the silence of the Lord Jesus Christ before his accusers. So these are the three points that I want to think about. Christ's suretyship, Christ's kingship and the silence of Christ before his enemies. So the first one then is to think about the Lord Jesus Christ as our surety. And the Holy Spirit, I think, has gone to great lengths to help us to understand the significance of Christ, our surety, in the way in which he has revealed the events uh, running up to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the example that we have in these few verses is the binding of Christ and his deliverance to Pilate. Christ being bound and delivered to Pilate <clears throat> is an example of Christ's suretyship role for his people. Here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, the binding of the sacrificial lamb prior to it being slain and sacrificed was emblematic of the binding here of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Jews. And perhaps you'll remember, uh, we, we read it a, a number of weeks ago uh, with, with the children, perhaps you'll remember that occasion when Abraham took his son Isaac to the mountains of Moriah. I think perhaps we mentioned at that time that there was a correspondence between the mountains of Moriah and uh, this area here in which Jerusalem was built and indeed potentially even uh, where the, the hill of Golgotha uh, was. Be that as it may, we know that Abraham brought Isaac to these very mountains where the Lord Jesus Christ would now be crucified. And when he brought his son there to the altar, Isaac asked his father, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said to his son, God will provide himself a lamb. And then Abraham took his son and he laid him upon the altar and he bound him there on the altar. And this is a picture to us of the work of Christ. And so we see in the sacrifice of Isaac the fact that God, in order to provide a way of salvation for his people, would provide himself a lamb. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that Lamb provided uh, by God. He himself is the Lamb. And the binding of the Lord Jesus Christ was in order to draw our attention to the linkage between these two events. One, 
was a picture of the other. So that in the Old Testament, believers could understand what was going to happen to the Lord when by faith they looked on the way in which God had instructed and directed his followers and gave them pictures and patterns in the Old Testament scripture of what would happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord would be bound, and the Lord would be delivered into the hands of his enemies, and the Lord would be placed upon the altar of judgment, and there the Lord would die as the provided lamb. And so there are pictures and types and anti-types there are likenesses and realities. <clears throat> There's prophecies and fulfilments. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of the Old Testament symbolism that pointed towards the way of salvation. And so we look at uh, these parallels and uh, we see that the Holy Spirit supplies them in order that our understanding and our uh, linkages between these Old Testament patterns and the reality and fullness in the person of Jesus Christ might be more fully understood. And in them, we see how the gospel in type and picture has always pointed to the coming Messiah and what he would endure for the salvation of the elect. For Christ to be our substitute, he must take our place and carry our punishment. But the Lord was also our surety. And we speak about these two words, substitute and surety, and in many ways they overlap. But the particular aspect of the suretyship of the Lord Jesus Christ is given uh, meaning and significance in the book of Hebrews, where we are told that Jesus was made surety of a better testament. And that testament, the other word for testament, is covenant. That testament, that better testament or better covenant, is the covenant of grace or the covenant of peace. And it is redemption by Christ's blood. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 7. And this is the, the, the covenant of grace and peace that was settled in eternity between the persons of the Godhead, whereby the Lord Jesus Christ stood forth, stepped forth as the covenant head and surety of his people to answer for our debts for our sin and to fulfill all our duty to God, to fulfill on our behalf everything that was required of us. And that's the sense of suretyship. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute. He endured in our place our sufferings, but he was also surety because not only did he answer for the debt, but he fulfilled all our duty and he satisfied the claims and demands of Almighty God. Christ stood in our room instead in all that he did and suffered. It is we who properly are bound over <clears throat> to the just judgment of God. 
It is we who are in bondage to Satan in our sin. And we saw that previously in our in our little introduction that the wicked are pictured as being bound hand and foot and cast into hell and to outer darkness in the last day. So that although we are guilty and although we deserve to be bound and delivered to death, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who was bound and delivered to death in our place. And this is this is just a picture that the Holy Spirit gives us to, to reinforce these parallels, to show us this substitutionary role and to remind us of the suretyship of the Lord Jesus Christ. His substitution for us in all points is foreshadowed in him being bound and delivered to judgment. And his suretyship means that he took all our debt, paid it to the full and cancelled and satisfied all our obligations and responsibilities to God. And this is what we mean when we talk about free grace. That's what we mean when we talk about God's provision for us in salvation, that everything needful was laid upon the obligation of Christ, and that in the everlasting covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ undertook to fully satisfy every righteous and holy demand that was laid upon the people of God's elective choice and purpose. And all that Jesus did and suffered was put to our account. When Christ had fulfilled all righteousness and by his sacrifice had removed every penalty of sin, his people were to all eternity and for all purposes made righteous in Christ's righteousness and freed from all sin by his cleansing blood. And that is the message of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. Not some notion about people deciding yes or no, or people making some some choice about whether or not they're going to be followers, or whether they're not they're going to be believers, or whether or not they want to go to heaven. That is so marginal and so inconsequential as to, to, to not merit repetition except to expose its fallacy. The gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ has done it all and ever had intended in everlasting covenant to supply the salvation of his people. By the simple act of binding and delivering the Saviour to Pilate, the Jews testified to the representative role of Christ for all his elect people. They, they assumed, they, they, they thought all they were doing was, was binding him as a mere precaution so that as they led him through the streets of Jerusalem in that early morning from the temple to uh, Pilate's uh, judgment hall, he wouldn't escape as if rope could prevent the Son of God from escaping any more than nails could secure him to the cross. 
But this act of the Jews prophetically supported the true identity of Christ. He was bound and he was delivered unto death. It fulfilled the words of the prophets. So Christ is our substitute and Christ is our surety. And here's another lesson that we have from these few verses. Christ is our king. This again was another aspect of this short trial that we have uh, presented before us here, this short interrogation between uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and Pilate. One of the accusations made against the Lord was that he claimed to be a king, the king of the Jews. And, and the Jews, the priests, they must have thought that this was a winning argument. Pilate could hardly do nothing if a man from Galilee was setting himself up against Caesar. They might have thought he was a madman, but there was evidence that he was gaining followers in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. And Pilate may well have thought better to nip such movements in the bud rather than let them grow out of control. So Pilate at once asks the question of Jesus, art thou the king of the Jews? That was the one that 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 he heard that was the one that 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 struck him. The Jews were right to to present this as an argument because they knew that Pilate would have to give it attention. So he at once asked the question, "Art thou the King of the Jews?" To which the Lord Jesus replied, "Yes, I am." The little phrase that is is in our passage here is, "Thou sayest," and. That would equally be well translated, it is as thou sayest. It's just as you say. Yes, I am a king. And it's perhaps at this point in Pilate's dealings with the Lord that, that Pilate realises he's dealing with a more nuanced matter than simply a would-be Jewish rebel. Pilate was a wily enough man, he was a smart enough man to know that the Jews envied Christ and he knew that Christ was not advocating armed rebellion. He knew this was a matter of Jewish religion. But Jesus wasn't a threat to, to, to the Roman army. He wasn't a challenger to, to, to Caesar. The Lord indeed told Pilate, it's recorded in another one of the, the gospel writers, he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. To this end was I born. This was the reason that I was born. For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Jesus was a preacher of the truth. His kingdom, his followers were not militant as far as politics are concerned or nationalism was concerned. 
The Lord's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not physical. It's not military. It's not employing the rule of law in order to accomplish its aims and ends. That was true then and it's true now. And many people perhaps seem to have have missed that point, who want to use the, the laws of a land in order to suppress certain kinds of activities. The Apostle Paul tells us the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. If we are to know anything about the righteous kingdom of God, the righteous kingdom of Christ, it is in the experience of a justified spirit, in a peace that passeth understanding, and in the joy of the Lord. These are Holy Spirit gifts. They are internal, they are spiritual, and it is this that shows our interest in and membership of the kingdom of God. So the even Pilate grasped that the Saviour was no threat to Caesar. Nevertheless, our Lord truthfully testified to his kingly office and to his sovereign power, a power far superior to all the kings of the earth and all the powers of the ages. Sovereignty is applicable only to our Lord Jesus Christ, says the Apostle Paul to Timothy. He writes, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is this Christ, this Christ of a spiritual kingdom, who is indeed King of kings and Lords of lords, the blessed and only potentate, the sovereign God of all eternity, that the people of God, the elect of God, turn their eyes in praise and in worship. And here again we have to emphasise the meaning of Christ's sovereign kingship, his absolute right to do all the things that he does according to his own good pleasure. If the sovereign God is not your God, then you've got the wrong God. Even Moses, as we saw earlier in the Song of Moses, understood that. Moses knew the Lord's dominion and unrivaled majesty. Moses knew because he sang the song, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And Daniel testified equally, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? And again we read, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared through all the earth. It's the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. We worship Christ the King. We serve 
Christ the King. Our Saviour asserted his kingly office and his sovereign majesty. The things that happen in this world are because Christ has ordained it to be so and he is sovereign ruler of all things in this world. The prophets declared it. It was long anticipated in the person of the coming Messiah and his apostles affirmed it in a New Testament age. This is what the scriptures teach and this is what we have been called to believe. So we consider the uh, uh, suretyship of the Lord. We consider his kingly office. And then thirdly, we can think about the silence of Christ. And perhaps a principal feature of the Lord's trials is his silence or his relative silence in the face of his enemies' accusations. We saw it with the high priests. It was true with Herod. And we are told that Pilate, no doubt a skillful judge of human nature in his own right, greatly marvelled that the Lord should make no reply in his own defence. The silence of the Lord in the face of these accusations from his enemies is more than simply not speaking. It's also more than the fact that the Lord was not giving legitimacy to the authority of their court systems, which might have been a reason for not speaking. But the silence of Christ showed that he did not resist the enemies who injured him. And that's the point. There was no resistance in the person of Christ. He was as a lamb led to the slaughter. The silence of Christ is seen in that he did not complain against the injuries that were inflicted on him. The injuries inflicted on Christ were more than the blows that struck his face. They were more than the nails that pierced his hand. There was the mockery, there was the misrepresentation, there was the lies that were spoken against him. There was the fact that, that emotionally, psychologically, a man would want to vindicate himself and yet the Lord took it all because it was part of the punishment that God brought against him for our sins. Such was the suffering of the Lord in body, in mind and in soul, in his emotions, in all of the aspects of his nature, that the whole person of Christ was crushed underneath this weight of suffering. He didn't complain. He saw his affliction as the justice of God against our sin and he meekly and willingly accepted all that he was called to bear. He owned the obligation he had laid himself under as the surety of his people. He would pay the debt he would drink the cup. He would bear the punishment without any dispute, without any hesitation. Christ was harmless and without guile. He was innocent at all times. He was meek. He was patient in his suffering. The Lord was ready and willing to be sacrificed in our place. 
And Christ would go all the way to the cross without resistance, without reluctance, without reservation. It mattered not to him what lie it was that convicted him. What mattered was that he paid the price for the sins of his people. He didn't speak out against his enemies. He didn't threaten them. He didn't accuse them of of duplicity and malpractice and all the lies and deceit that he could have, have done. He viewed all his sufferings set before him and he paid that suffering. He paid that debt to the justice of God. God's justice demanded full satisfaction for sin and the end of that process would be the complete emptying of the cup. No bitterness would be left in the cup of God's wrath. Every last drop must be drained and Christ's silence in the face of his accusers was tacit acceptance of all that he was called to bear and endure. The Apostle Peter wrote uh, much later in, in his own life, he wrote, Who of Christ, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. What a sight we have before us here with the Lord Jesus Christ standing bound before Pilate. The eternal Son of God in human nature. The Lord of life and glory. The Prince of kings of the earth. Standing before a heathen governor. Someday Pilate will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Caiaphas will be there and Herod will be there as we all, as men and women, must stand. And our Lord Jesus Christ stood before human judges, though he had no crimes of his own to answer for, but he carried the sins of his people upon him. And for this reason, as he stood before Pilate, he stood in reality before the bar of God's justice. Soon the Saviour would receive Pilate's sentence of condemnation. He was condemned in the flesh, bearing the whole of the sin of his people in his body, so that the righteousness of God might be imputed to us who believe. He stood bound before Pilate that we might stand free before God. He faced death with boldness and courage that we might escape everlasting death and enter heaven by a new and living way opened for us. And by the binding of Christ, his people are freed. Paul tells us, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Amen. May the Lord bless these thoughts to our hearts.